70% of the money a business spends is on its people. And if businesses start to reevaluate who's full-time, who's part-time, where do they work, what skills do we need, where do we grow and train, I think the DNA of organizations is going to change radically. NPS I Love You is a weekly customer success podcast for people who know that CS is about more than just churn and upsells. It's about people. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and my goal with this show is to give you powerful insights that'll improve your life and the lives of your customers. I'm very excited to be joined today by Sultan Saidov, who is the co-founder and president of Beamery, the leading talent operating system. So Sultan, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Ben. So uh, there's a lot I want to dig into on the recruitment and talent side and your philosophies on that, but just so we can get hear a little bit more about how you got started. I'm curious about what the problem was that you saw that motivated you to found Beamery or co-found Beamery. Sure. And it was actually a, a series of problems and uh, it took a bit of experimentation and validation for the first year to decide how we want to approach it. Because ultimately, there's two pretty large problems that started our, our exploration. And the first actually stemmed from where both uh, Abakar, uh, my co-founder is actually my brother and I, started our careers in finance right in the middle of the financial crisis, so post-2008. And that was the perfect example of how the traditional job and career system, when it breaks, ends up resetting a lot of livelihoods. You know, you have a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I saw this firsthand with um, uh, people who were planning to start their careers or starting their careers in, in, in major banks and uh, ended up unemployed and then finding it pretty hard years later to get back on the treadmill of uh, which jobs to, to go for and where to work. And the first hypothesis was that we live in a world where the amount of information available online, the amount of data about people, about potential skills, about roles, should allow us to reduce the friction it takes to find the right opportunities, and more importantly, be found for the right opportunities. Mm-hmm. And our initial hypothesis in this question was, why is there such a growing difference between the customer experience, which is becoming more and more frictionless, and the candidate experience, um, which is staying stagnant and static? And we realized that one of the major shifts that happened that allowed customer experiences to improve started with the way that customer data and the way organizations look at customer data expanded in its sophistication and in the manner in which it was people-centric. Whereas talent data and talent processes remained administrative, you get treated as tickets. A job is a ticket that gets posted. A, an application is a ticket. And the, the reason that that transition hasn't in many ways happened is because the underlying processes and principles that allow organizations to create frictionless customer experiences stem from them not being ticket-based systems, but being systems where re-engagement, rediscovery, retargeting, remarketing, mm-hmm. analyzing the small data points that allow you to understand different segments and audiences and personalized experiences for them. That requires a people-centric perspective, you know, building personas and working around them. And actually, a lot of businesses um, have framed their organizations around this idea of how, within that customer lifecycle, how do you start thinking about building pipelines? It's created predictability because you start thinking about our revenue in terms of revenue coverage, which is you know the, the book that Salesforce pioneered with predictable revenue. So it's not just experience that suffers, it's also predictability because we're not people-centric. We don't have a sense of pipeline coverage in the same way for talent. Uh, and it's not just about hiring either, it's about any initiative. If you want to meet certain diversity targets, you don't know whether you're going to if you don't have a good sense of uh, possible pipeline, likelihood of finding the right talent. So that was one side of it. And we actually started with this, this idea of what, if, what happens if we start treating candidates like customers? What will the world look like? The second side of it, also stemming from, from our own stories and backgrounds. So Abacar and I are both um, uh, first-generation immigrants, and uh, we're very acutely aware of 
the extent to which the privilege of where you are born, where you study, who you therefore know, ends up having a, a, a really major role in where you end up working. Because today, because the process is so transactional and uh, opaque, you know, in, in the UK, I think about 80% of recruiting still happens through agencies and networks and connections. There isn't a very skill or competency-based model available, which means that there's a lack of fairness. Uh, you know, the, the passport lottery, so to speak, is a function of the process we live in, where the fact that there are so few opportunities to apply to every company and uh, so much of it is, is driven ultimately by connections, networks, referrals. And so we wanted to find ways of leveraging data and intelligence and skills in order to help the world move to a, a less passport lottery and a more uh, competency-based uh, and fairer model. I love that. Yeah, both extremely good points. The first one should, it's funny because you know the way you describe it, it feels like it should be obvious. Oh, let's treat candidates like customers. And Obviously, your great team leads to great revenue numbers and their people, they should be treated like it's a whole other uh, thing, but it seems obvious, but yet it wasn't done that way for so long. Um, there's still that ongoing joke about, I think there's me multiple memes about it, but you know, even just the experience of getting to a hiring page and having to upload your resume and then manually re-enter all of your resume data yeah. in the separate boxes and like all that kind of stuff and screens for keywords and, you know ripe for disruption. So very glad to, to see the work that you guys are doing in the space. And uh, I mean, the second point I think is fantastic. And it's something that I think about a lot in every industry, because even when it comes to music, or it comes to acting, or it comes to, you know, anything that anyone painting, like there's all these amazing things that people can do. But when you look at it, it's like, okay, there were all these amazing artists in, in Paris in the 1920s. But how many artists were there in the rest of the world or are there now that just aren't in that location at the right time and place so they're not able to be the next Monet, Picasso, Dali, whatever you want to exactly. sub in there. And you could say that for any industry. So I think it's such a an amazing mission just for society in general to be moving towards a model whereby people have better access, better opportunity, regardless of where they are, regardless of their existing connections, and and we can really let everybody shine in their own way. You couldn't have picked a better example with uh, Paris and the, the culture scene there. That's uh, exactly it. And I think the, the reality is that that also creates a risk that people, even while, while they're in the middle of their careers, uh, end up not exploring alternative opportunities. I think part of it is about mm -hmm. the access uh, to work and the fairness of it. Part of it is also leveraging the, the new tools, the data, the AI, the intelligence available to us to help people path their own careers, even if they're in the middle of them. I was um, having a conversation uh, just earlier today with um, our, our chief product officer about the way in which the world of maps technology has evolved from us using pen and paper maps towards, obviously, uh, Google Maps, for example, where it shows you where you are and then you can look at different routes and paths and options. It's not that dissimilar to um, how we could think about the difference between how careers work today, where you don't necessarily know where you are and it's kind of hard to chart out where you could go or different routes or different options. It's a, a lot of work. It's very opaque. Uh, but the reality is it doesn't have to be. We have a lot of information yeah. about how different people's career paths progress, who you could speak to. I love that. All of the data to create you know, a GPS system for, um, for us to explore different career opportunities is there. But it's, a, it's not just technology. It's also about activation. I think ultimately, there's a cultural component of how we think about our own careers and how we think about, you know, as organizations, uh, people within our teams and how you know, it's often harder to get a role within your own organization than applying externally. 
So the friction is not just an experience question, but also a how do we bring this this kind of transparency to light to help people make better decisions and help organizations uh, provide those options to people to to consider their own growth. I love that. And I'm, I hope you guys turn that into a tool because I think that'd be incredible. Uh, it makes me think of just this uh, story. It always make me laugh. My mom, when she was first getting going, getting into the workforce, she took a, a job test to see what she, what she should be and, you know, checked off all these different questions. Okay. I like the outdoors. I like this. I like that. Anyway, the end result was lumberjack <laughs> and I mean, she ended up being a teacher and musician and all that kind of stuff. Very different. But I always just thought it was funny because, you know, I think we can do a little better now with AI, but I think, uh, it's interesting because as, especially as the market, the job market evolves and more and more jobs are being created in different and new ways, like jobs that didn't exist five, 10 years ago. I'm a community manager. Like yeah. you'd have been hard pressed to find a community manager in 2010. Well, that's the thing. I think that one way I think about this is there's a difference between trying to treat AI as prediction, like be a lumberjack versus <laughs> AI as the new UI, the new transparency and simplicity in, in choices. You can see how that is starting to shape even basic things like uh, Apple, for example, recently announced their new OS, and it's primarily using some very sophisticated AI to do some very simple things like declutter what task you see next or what notification you see next. And I think ultimately that there's a similar component in terms of how people can think about their experiences and what technology can do for them. It's not necessarily about telling you, do this. It's about helping declutter the noise of choices. Because when you say, you know, there's this Cambrian explosion of jobs, we used to have career paths like lumberjacks and nurses and doctors. Now there's new job titles appearing every second. How do we stitch that together into something that is more translatable? Um, if I have a certain set of ideas of what I might like to do, how do I uh, browse my options? Um, and this is mm -hmm. one of those areas where, you know, Google doesn't work very well. Um, you have to understand things within your own organization and within certain contexts. So I do think that in many ways, the biggest power of um, what we can now do with uh, technology and AI in particular is uh, about helping people have exploration of their own thoughts and, and their own ideas and, and to clarify their own thinking rather than necessarily telling people do X. In the same way, going back to the Google example, you know, if you're trying to plan a route, it can give you choices. Like this could be a little faster. This could be a toll road. It's about using that kind of information to give people a few options and routes rather than having them figure everything out from, from scratch for themselves. I think that's critical. And I think the, the way you, the point you touched on there, the key, one of the operative words is just saying a, a few options because the problems now is you either have none or you've got choice paralysis, right? You go exactly. on LinkedIn or in, inside and you're, you know, overwhelmed with here's 80,000 res job results. But if it was here are three targeted recommendations based on all of your inputs, that's incredibly powerful. And I still have choice over it. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you about Beamery's growth because. I mean, you saw incredible growth last year. It was something like 330 or 340% growth. And then I saw recently you had 400% growth in Q1 compared to last year. So uh, I have some of the, one of the numbers that, that I saw pop up was I, you know, last year you helped place half a million people with jobs. And most of those were what you called proactive recruiting or in the mm -hmm. form of what you call proactive recruiting. So can you explain a little bit about what proactive recruiting means versus reactive recruiting? Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, probably the, the best starting point would be to, to dissect uh, what that half a million people that were placed uh, through our systems uh, in 2020, and it's now approaching close to a million people over the last 12 months. It's amazing. really looks like. So we, we track more than that. So we, we work with a lot of the world's largest organizations. And so we, we see people getting hired, obviously, in excess of those numbers. We, we've tracked millions of people get, get jobs. 
Um, so the piece we're calling out in that half a million to a million number in terms of proactive recruiting starts actually with the number of candidates that get hired through rediscovery. Reactive recruiting essentially refers to the traditional processes of posting a job and waiting for an applicant. Sometimes you can think of it as just in time, because by doing that, what you are re- you are reacting to the immediate business needs and you're not prepared. You don't have pipeline. You don't have candidates uh, ready to start the job or to apply for the job interview. It's a little bit like if you're trying to sell a product online and from the moment you post the product, it takes 30 days to have your first view or your first click or your first purchase. You should be able to get people who've previously bought your product. So you contact and say, this is a new product that's similar to something you've bought. And people should start expressing an interest on day one, um, not day 30. And so the, the equivalent to that is, is very direct in the sense that proactive recruiting is about leveraging your previous applicants or even previous people that you've spoken to as a step one, which actually turns out to be the number one most effective source and, and strategy for large organizations, because there is so much talent that for various reasons, you know, you might have interacted to uh, with, but they weren't ready. Oftentimes in recruiting and talent, uh, we refer to silver medalists, which is people who were runners up for a role. Mm-hmm. If that was the case three years ago, they might be the perfect candidate now. And so one of the things we do is uh, to enable this kind of proactive mindset is refresh data, enrich data, reconnect with talent to ask them to uh, keep their information up to date as well. The other part of it is, again, similar to kind of customer journeys, there's an inbound and an outbound component. Inbound is how do you build leads so that when opportunities arise, you have the right talent ready to fill, uh, fill those roles and speak to about those roles. And similar strategies to what you'd use in traditional marketing and, and customer journeys uh, obviously, you put forward your employer brand uh, with blogs and articles and employee videos, but for the majority of candidates aren't going to turn into an immediate applicant. They'll be passive. They w- uh, might not be ready to apply there and then. There might not be a job there and then that's available to them. So unless you have things like talent communities, lead capture, events that convert into people expressing an interest or chatting to your team, um, and unless you're doing that and then storing people's data somewhere, mm-hmm. All of your employer brand is going to be um, going to waste, you know, 80 to 90% of the time for the, all those people that don't have a way to convert yep. because there isn't a job there and then that fits them and, or because they're not ready. So it's taking that 80 to 90% of passive talent um, who are often, you know, the, the highest capability talent as well, because often, uh, you know, the, the best fit people are less likely to be actively looking. And so starting this conversation so that when the right opportunity does arise, when they're ready, you can re-engage for roles that are available. Um, so, so I think... Th- that's the, the inbound piece. The outbound piece, again, similar to you know, what a, an organization would do with a sales function in terms of reaching out to people directly, particularly for more senior roles where you're building relationships, building pipelines, even using existing networks, uh, not just to connect to talent in the sense of referrals, um, but also to create back-channeling scenarios and understand who can we reach out to uh, in a way that uh, isn't just a recruiter sending an email, but it's clear that um, there's an employee in the organization that they know sending emails with relevant topics. Um, so recently at Beamery, we ran a, a non-recruiting event. It was um, just uh, women at Beamery talking about their journeys, uh, both in the technology parts of our business and otherwise. And we ended up uh, hiring somebody the day after the event as a result of the event uh, because it attracted a, a certain set of people into conversations around D&I and around what we do at Beamery. But, but that's the reality. It's not even just recruiting activities that lead to effective recruiting if you have a proactive mindset. It's about treating what your business does and the brand it puts forward in a way that can be connected very seamlessly into talent conversations and talent experiences. I love that. And it's taking sort of an indirect route. That's a fast hiring funnel. They, this person came to the event the next day they were, uh, they were hired. That's a, it's a great, uh, great speed. 
That one was uh, definitely a, a record setter for us. But um, because we're growing so fast, we've also optimized a number of our processes to to be able to have a series of interviews and conversations within within a 24-hour period, uh, which uh, doesn't always work. But when it does, it's pretty magical. I mean, we, we have that, you know, that, that same challenge at Catalyst sometimes, right? We want to have a certain, you know, number of candidates in the funnel before we make a final decision. But then we also want to move all those candidates through very quickly so that we don't risk, you know, if they're job hunting and they're going to get three other offers over the next two weeks, we want to be the first one in there with a great offer. So it's a tough balance to strike, right? In terms of how is it too fast? Is it too slow? Are you asking too much if you're asking them to do an assignment or not enough? Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not easy. No, absolutely. And, and there's also, you know, no magic bullet that sort of solves this for, for every area of the business. But one of the things that we've been analyzing and studying recently is the scenarios in which it's becoming more important to change the way that you approach certain roles. Because the way we think about what work somebody has to do, to your point, it's not just job titles that are evolving. It's also really, do we need every skill and every set of experiences? How many jobs are uh, possible to uh, grow into or reshape so that not all of the requirements are requirements? So, So I think there's a lot of reassessment going on right now around how, especially in roles that are hard to fill, how much of this is a, is a necessary requirement on day one versus can be solved through effective training? Are we actually focusing on the right key skills? Uh, how do I identify that? And again, that's a, a great area where AI and technology can help surface some of those answers around which of these skills are translatable or adjacent or could, um, could have people grow into it. Um, I saw one very topical example around companies hiring blockchain engineers. And obviously, there's not that many people with blockchain engineering experience comparing to all the demand for blockchain engineers. Uh, but there's lots of other technologies that are translatable. So you don't have to hire a blockchain engineer to do blockchain. You can hire people with uh, certain backgrounds and train them into that in a short space of time. And probably it would uh, cost your business less and uh, would give you the right candidates a lot faster. Definitely. It's a great example. Good space to be in if you are a blockchain engineer, for sure, right now. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to, uh, just because I wanted to dig in a little more on the hiring funnel, what are one or two things that companies can or should be doing to ensure that candidates are staying engaged? Let's say you can't do a 24-hour turnaround, but let's say, you know, it's going to take a week, a week and a half to from, you know, their, their initial application or you reaching out to being able to send them an offer because of the layers and the scheduling and things that need to be done. How can companies keep those candidates engaged throughout that process? So I think in that particular example, of somebody being in the middle of a process, I think the human element rather than the technology element is the most key. Um, Because if somebody's in the middle of actually speaking to your company, I think the best mechanism is to have people in your team uh, connect with a candidate in the middle of the process or make themselves available for questions and so forth. Now, where technology can help is to help you not drop balls. For example, did we respond to everybody that's in the middle of a process? Do we have visibility into where we haven't had that check-in? But I don't think there's any anything better than an actual human conversation availability to do that during that process if, if you can find the capacity for it. But I think even in the absence of finding capacity for it, there are a few things. Um, for example, if you have certain tips that would help a candidate have more visibility into the process or to be less anxious about next steps mm-hmm. or certain pieces of information around what other people in the team have gone through this process had to do, I think sharing things like employee videos and people who've started in that team, giving people awareness if you know which team you're hiring them into of what that team looks like. Um, I think all of those things not only help with engagement in the process, uh, but also if you actually make the offer will put you in a strong position to to obviously be a preferred employer. I think the piece that you talk about with re-engagement, though, uh, doesn't just apply to people who are in the middle of an offer. I think it's often uh, even more important to consider cases where somebody's applied and you haven't moved them into interview. It's really important that, you know, to use a 
an analogy from the army you know, that no candidates left behind, because it's very easy to just send a transactional thank you for applying. That's not the same as, you know, saying something slightly more personal around if you can't have time to interview them, apologizing for why or explaining why. If you reject them, making sure that if they, unless you, you uh, it's like a do not hire style candidate, making sure that uh, you re-engage them afterwards for future opportunities and give them visibility into not only, you know, why you weren't able to hire them, but also that there might be future opportunities in the team and uh, that you'll be speaking in the future, giving them a choice of like, if you want to keep hearing from, from us, please tell us what kind of information will be mo- most useful. Um, so I think those types of things you can set up during that early process. I think from a, also a DNI perspective, it's an opportunity to ask people about whether they're interested in certain ERG interest groups or affinity groups in terms of what type of communication from, from your business might be, might be relevant to them. So I think there's a lot of things, both in terms of updating the candidate, but also collecting certain data points from them so that in the future you can, you can keep them engaged in the right kind of way. Awesome. I love that. Almost creating sort of a, a nurture campaign for specific candidates. Yeah, I, I like exactly. that idea, especially around giving videos and little pieces of micro content. And definitely keeping them engaged after is key. You mentioned before that a huge number of these successful referrals come from people who previously either were in the funnel that either reapplied themselves because they now qualify, or maybe they knew someone or they know someone now who would be great for the new job, even if it's not the one that they applied for. Maybe they know a great designer or they maybe they know a great you know customer success manager or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think that there, there are certain times where the extent to which you're able to differentiate yourself become more important. And so... We're, we're actually about to publish some statistics around this, but um, the, we're at an interesting time where, because of what's happened in the last 18 months, the number of candidates looking for roles has gone up. Um, we see in our statistics that it's gone up by about 50% uh, compared to the same time last year. But the number of open roles has gone up 500%. Wow. Quarter and quarter from Q1 uh, this year to Q1 last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though we have more candidates looking for roles than ever before, and a lot of that is... is um, uh, people looking to shift roles and so forth. The demand from organizations is unprecedented. And that creates some interesting dynamics because some roles are going to suddenly be oversupplied with candidates. Other roles are suddenly going to be uh, harder to hire for than ever. And so people are dealing with a higher volume of applications, but also those candidates are more likely to be getting multiple offers. So yep. it's going to be um, an interesting time for companies to figure out how to represent themselves effectively, You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, to portray what it's like to be in the organization in a way that is... Um, both uh, not only appealing to candidates, but that is sufficiently early in the process uh, to give those organizations a, a, a good chance of competing for the right talent. Definitely. I've talked to a lot of leaders lately that have sort of voiced that same thing. They're getting a ton of applicants, but they're having a very hard, they have so many open roles. And it's also finding qualified applicants, which also goes back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, which is leveraging the technology we have now and the data we have now to understand transferable skills and, you know, if someone has experience in XYZ and you're looking for, you know, ABC, seeing what can go back and forth and what can't and making more definitive decisions around that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit Catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out Catalyst.io to learn more. 
One of the other main focuses of Beamery, if I understand correctly, is engaging and retaining your existing team members. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that because the latest Gallup numbers show almost 70% of American workers are either not engaged or they are actively disengaged at work. You know, why do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons and I would speculate to to try and rank them. But I think part of it is obviously tied to the situation the world is in and and what it's like to be adjusting to uh, not only working from home, but some of the impacts it has on, on certain types of jobs and certain types of organizational cultures. So we've been thinking about what, what will it mean to go back to work in an engaging way, which I think is the other way of looking at this question, because simply going back to offices isn't going to suddenly make uh, things engaging, because I don't think it's possible to return to where we were. And I think part of the consideration is, you know, in our company, because of how we, quickly we've been growing, about 50% of the people um, at Beamery have been here for less than 12 months. So they've joined in the middle of the pandemic. They haven't actually mm -hmm. had the chance to meet anybody. I think some, some elements of engagement come from actual connections, human connections to people you work with. Some of it comes from having certain rituals that make you care more about your customers or your team or how you work together. I think it's hard to generalize uh, what that looks like because it means so many different things to different jobs. You know, if it's a salesperson, it might be engaging to occasionally fly out somewhere and meet somebody. If you are a product or design person, it might be nice to do a whiteboarding session or a workshop. And of course, some of these things can be fully remote. But I think for a large number of people, these things layer up, particularly when you have home stresses. You know, if you have kids at home, if you have certain things happening in your house and you have a certain stasis around, you know, not being able to move around and get out of your own living environment. But after how long we've all been at home, I think the interesting thing about that kind of a disengagement and what makes the return to engagement hard is, um, you know, there's other statistics that show that uh, close to 50% of people don't want to go back full-time to offices. And, you know, in some uh, areas, it's even higher than that. And so the question is, what, is it, uh, what does engagement uh, look like? Um, how much of that is going to be through being less one-size-fits-all? Because I think one thing that the last 12 months have shown us is not everyone's in the same boat. You know, this situation has affected everybody differently, and everyone's going to come out of this with different expectations. I think we're going to diverge in terms of uh, what works for us. And that means that engagement has to be a lot more tailored and personalized, which means companies have to spend a lot more time and thought surveying their staff and their teams and finding the balance between things that work for the team and things that work for the individuals, because those aren't always the same thing. You know, if you told people mm -hmm. that everyone's going to go into the office one day a week, it might be uh, difficult to make that engaging if everyone chooses a different day. There's a lot of, I think, considerations around how do we understand uh, what matters to our people in our context and obviously the the unique positions that both both you as a company and your individuals find themselves in, and what does it mean to create certain types of rituals and uh, work habits and even office spaces for people going back to offices um, that make those interactions uh, more meaningful. Definitely. I like what you said about it. You know, it, it can't be a one-size-fits-all, especially now, because everyone had different needs, different situations. It's almost impossible. It would seem ridiculous to say, okay, like, back to where we all, like, everyone's in these hours. I mean, in startups, we're already a little bit flexible on that, but now it's it's really sort of the Wild West, and it's up to you to to do it for yourself. But it's how do we use the data we have? How do we, you know, talk to people and figure out what how we can allow each individual person to figure out what makes the most sense for themselves and then just support them in that? I feel like I, I feel the, the not, not pity, but I feel the pain of a lot of HR and team and people in culture and office managers right now as they sort of work to navigate that sort of problem, right? How do you build something that's unique to everyone, but still accomplish your goals in terms of people and culture? For sure. And, and look, I think um, there's certain opportunities that have emerged 
as a forcing function of the last 18 months that I think should end up serving businesses that have seized those opportunities very well in the long run. So for example, one of the things to the point of you know flexibility that uh, our team did is when we ran our first global company offsite, which was fully remote because obviously <laughs> couldn't uh, do an offsite together, they took a very creative approach, which ended up working very well, which is uh, to turn it into a build your own adventure offsite. The talks, the content was um, all, almost all of it was pre-recorded and in different formats. So you could watch a video or you could um, listen to an audio and go for a walk. Or there's a reading format, so like for people who prefer reading. And there were certain rituals that were uh, done in different time allocations so people could pick when they wanted to join. So there'd be like a cooking class, but people would pick, pick the times they wanted to join it. And that created something that I think broke through the, the Zoom fatigue that happens if you just have everybody sitting on the same schedule and going from meeting to meeting. It kind of created a certain set of uh, choices that people could adjust to their own schedules, which of course is more important than ever. And I think the type of learnings and also discipline around how to run these things that occurs in organizations and certainly has occurred for us should be something that serves businesses very well when we do start returning to a different you know, new form of normality. Um, because being able to let more people work remotely, uh, being able to onboard people in a way and hire people in a way that is able to leverage more video and more content and more structure, these things will be incredibly powerful and beneficial and engaging in uh, organizations, even if they go back to you know a full, a full office um, environment, because you'll have more transparency, more data and more personalization options available to you in terms of how you treat people. So I think one of the things that will be interesting is you know how how many businesses are able to seize that opportunity of taking all the things that they've learned and you know some of the digital digital elements that have come into it and leverage that in in the way we move forward. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. I'm curious to ask you about measuring potential. Uh, this is a, a really interesting topic to me. I've talked about it with people here at Catalyst. I've talked about it with other companies because I think it's probably one of the... We talk about it in a customer success context in terms of companies, right? How you know, what level of service maybe, for example, should this company receive? Maybe they're a low ARR now, but we see them on this track. We want to give them white glove service so that, you know, we can make sure we're really investing in the long-term partnership with this company. That might be how a CS team would apply it. So using a tool like Catalyst to evaluate the potential of a company and determine the service level is something that we're discussing, exploring. I'm curious from your perspective on the on the talent side of things, you recently predicted a shift in the static way in terms of how we assess people from, you know, standard to what is their potential, the potential mm-hmm. of this employee. How do you measure that in the interview process? And how do, you, how do you try to make it objective versus a subjective, like, I like the cut of your jib kind of, yeah. you know, well, 50s style. I'd actually start by highlighting that I don't think there's any way to make it fully objective, but I think that what, what um, and there's an element of this that touches on your previous question around engagement and disengagement. There's an element of uh, potential assessment that today is difficult because of a, a sort of blank screen problem. If you're asking somebody to self-assess their own potential and their own skills, it's a very hard question to answer. You know, saying to somebody, what are you good at? And not giving them a baseline is, um, is a very difficult conversation. And, and not many people know how to frame themselves as a set of skills or capabilities. And the same goes to uh, you know, managers being asked to assess somebody or interview somebody and the reason this, this touches on the engagement point is because one of the ways in which you can make assessments better is by making the process of how you assess your own skills, which obviously connects to potential, and assess somebody else's skills, assisted with certain types of inference and certain types of suggestion. So, uh, And again, this is a great application of where data and AI uh, can 
less, uh, do more to give a suggestion to guide a set of decisions for you rather than give you an answer and uh, tell you that you're a lumberjack, to use your example <laughs> earlier. So, for example, if you tell somebody that, you know, we know that these are the kinds of things that you've been doing in your company, and we can see that from the work you've done, and we know that from you, what that your role title in your company means and how long you've been there, these are the types of things you should be good at. And in terms of typical career progressions in your company, this is the kind of stuff that could translate into. All of that you can infer just based on that person, their role, and the company. And then the conversation around fit and potential, whether it's in the context of interviews or in the context of internal performance, has a baseline that is more objective and more tied to the reality of what happens in that company and what people like that person uh, typically have in terms of set of skills and typically translate into in terms of uh, career progression and roles. Um, so, so I think that's, that's the first part, um, starting the conversation with a set of baselines that are relevant and meaningful. And, and some organizations then layer that with their own uh, structure and frameworks, you know, whether it's progression frameworks or otherwise, that mean that you have a certain set of behaviors that you'd expect somebody to do, and then you can assess their potential against those as well. I think the, the next piece is around how much of the elements of assessment that dig into that can become more objective. And I think that really varies by different you know, skill sets and roles. I know that there's a lot of work that's been done to uh, identify people's reaction speeds and th through various games. I actually know of one company... I would fail that miserably. Well, there was actually one cool technology I saw where they were analyzing uh, live stream streaming games from streamers and inferring their um, reaction speeds and various other pieces that match to the, what skills they might have. Interesting. But I think, again, the reality is you might be objective about how fast somebody is. That's not the same thing as being objective about their potential to do a certain job unless that job is purely tied to reaction speed. So I think the, the way that those individual blocks uh, stitch together, I think it, you can assess for individual blocks, especially if they're very discrete. It's harder to do that for you know, softer skills. But again, there's certain things like you know, analyzing the words in the video, getting a sense of how emotionally intelligent someone is. All of these are signals that we can use technology in a semi-objective way to piece together. You can then have the subjective component be much more data-driven and informed. Definitely. So I'm curious if you are a fan of the uh, higher, slow, fire, fast methodology. It's one of those uh, things that sounds so great and sounds so obvious, but um, is obviously very hard on both the, especially on the, on the fire fast. I think that the higher slow, just starting with that, yes, in the sense that you want to hire thoughtfully. Oh, yeah, bearing in mind that you, you just said you hired someone in 24 hours. Well, that's the thing. I think <laughs> that slow doesn't necessarily mean the hiring process is slow. I think that often the, the piece that you should definitely spend the most time in is really thinking about the role. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's easy to not spend enough time on the actual role description. And not the description in terms of what a candidate sees, but internally, like, have we really thought through what are the skills for this job? And similar to what we talked about earlier with the transferable skills and how roles can develop, are we really clear on what we really need? And are there different flavors of it that we would be open to? Um, are we really clear on how we are assessing for these things? So I would say do that super slowly. Uh, even think about who's interviewing for these things. Do we have uh, people trained to interview for the specific things they're interviewing for? Do, are we really clear on what good looks like? So I would do that piece slow. And then the actual hiring process can be super fast because you have a good picture of who you're looking for. You know, if you're pipelining and doing those things, you probably have candidates already. So you can turn around hiring in you know, one to five days in a way that is efficient and thoughtful if you've done the work up front. And I think also there's an element of not just thinking about the job in isolation, but have we thought through how it impacts other jobs? Do we have sort of a, a racy around what, what this means? You know, most roles are not just a new role. They have an impact on everyone else. So thinking through those pieces as well. And that comes back, uh, touches on the fire fast piece. I am definitely an advocate of uh, trying to make decisions quickly. 
but also in a way that is fair to the candidate. So, you know, we use probation periods as many companies do. And the right way to fire fast is to do so during a probation where it's very visible to both sides what the expectations are, um, whether it's, you know, one month or three months or anything in between. The question around uh, transparency so that people appreciate it's a fair decision is, is the thing to get right. So again, I would think about that slowly so that you can actually make the decision fast. So I'd probably look at it more as plan slow on both fronts and then do both quickly. Okay, excellent. I like that. Yeah, 90% planning, 10% execution kind of thing, like in terms of how you divide it. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, la- last question I want to throw your way because I know you and the team are at the forefront of this industry. So are there a couple key trends that you see on the horizon on the hiring front for the next next couple of years that you think are going to be sort of a, a, a major shift in the in the way that we're doing it now? Quite a few. And I think a lot can happen in, in five years, um, as, as we've sure. seen in just the last two. I think one piece is around this element of uh, mobility and how people uh, transition within roles and between roles more quickly. I think we're about to see a lot more people starting to switch roles within companies and, and to look for roles externally. And the number of different role titles and what we expect from roles is accelerating because the nature of the way organizations now operate means that we end up with a set of niche specialized skills and tools and things that we expect uh, continuing to proliferate. And it's uh, hard for people to, to keep up with that in their careers, whether it's in technology or otherwise. And so I think the extent to which we will be having conversations around skills and how we can think about transferable skills and people shifting career paths and organizations. And at a higher society level, how do we train for that? How do we adapt to that is, I think, one, one trend, which connects to the second trend, which is fairness. I think that there's going to be both a lot of questions around fairness uh, of, are we training people adequately? Are we retraining? Are we being fair in the opportunities we're giving people? But also organizations, um, hopefully, uh, taking new approaches to ensure that they are being fair on a number of fronts, whether it's in terms of uh, the example you gave of giving people an equal chance. Certainly, uh, from a DEI perspective, that is already becoming a theme, which is fantastic. We're starting to see the question of how organizations treat people no longer being this sort of abstract, you know, every CEO says people are our greatest asset and then they outsource it, um, which has mm-hmm. happened a lot over the last uh, 30 years. I think people are now starting to really own it. And I think topics like DEI are no longer just. Uh, sort of a, a standalone initiative. They're cutting across every part of the organization and more organizations, which is going to have an, an enormous impact. And I'm very optimistic about this around how organizations approach everything from internal communication styles uh, and how to think about fairness, how to monitor it. Um, there's a lot more transparency, which is you know one of the, the most important foundations to being able to make change and recognize what your successes and your flaws. So I, I think that that element of how organizations apply fairness and the amount of data that's going to be put to use in doing that across both skills and DNI and those other themes is going to be a really a really big theme over over the next uh, year, but also into the next five years. Um, I think the final piece I'd mention is around different types of forecasting um, that organisations are going to uh, start doing that they haven't done before, which is going to quite radically change the way businesses plan and the way businesses make decisions. I think that you know the last two years have been surprising to many businesses. I mean, in our case, when things first hit in, um, in March last year, 
we weren't expecting to do as well as we have done as a business. We weren't expecting to grow this quickly. So it's been a positive surprise in, in, in that regard. Um, there's been you know, other areas where it's, uh, it's, not, it's not been as smooth. But if there's one thing that every business, I think, has learned over the last uh, two years, it's that it's more important to be able to uh, forecast different types of decisions. And when it comes to people and talent, there is very little capability to forecast and plan, Yeah, particularly compared to what I talked about earlier with predictable revenue. So questions around, you know, are we going to meet our DNI targets? Are we even doing the right thing by hiring these roles uh, full-time? Should this, this, these be uh, contractors? You know, more and more people are starting to be freelancers. How do we think about that in the context of our business? Where should we lean, lean into that? These are really significant questions. You know, 70% of the money a business spends is on its people. And if businesses start to reevaluate who's full-time, who's part-time, where do they work? What skills do we need? Where do we grow and train? I think the DNA of organizations is going to change radically as businesses start to bring some of that data to light. But I also think businesses are going to start building new departments around this, you know, business um, and and data operations to start uh, planning better, uh, interfacing with other functions. It's actually, you know, the reason that we're called a talent operating system, because uh, we are uh, helping businesses embed uh, data-driven operations across their HR and talent functions um, to not only identify patterns, but forecast and then implement change as a result. So so I think those, those types of trends will have a pretty significant effect, not just on businesses, but on the the different organizational units within businesses and the type of career options available to people as well. Amazing. Lots of exciting stuff to look forward to. Excited to see uh, what BMRI comes up with next. Sultan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was awesome. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. It's great for my self-esteem. Thanks for joining us. And if you'd like to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. P.S. I love you.